On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, repetition is the mother of skill. Do you mean repetition is the mother of skill? Yeah, from what I hear, repetition is the mother of skill. So what you're saying is... The it's repetition- episode 16. Turn it up! <laughs> I couldn't do it, man. <laughs> Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor of Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. Today's episode is dedicated to Mirror Ministries. I love these guys. I heart Mirror Ministries. So these guys do uh, sex trafficking rescue in town here. Um, And you can uh, take a look at their website, which I would highly encourage, mirror-ministries.org. And uh, yeah, these these gals are great. There's guys that work on the board there too, but most of the people that are doing the, the interfacing with the female uh, victims at least are, uh, are ladies, of course. And I just think the world of these gals. I call them up sometimes when we um, intersect in uh, across situations that are clearly you know pretty nefarious. Like, hey, something's going on here. I'm going to call these gals at Mirror Ministries, and they just swoop in and help out incredibly. So uh, I love them. God loves them, more importantly, and uh, loves what they're doing. So there is a, a Survivor Services 24-hour hotline. So I'm going to give you that number right now. And if I remember, again, we'll shout it out at the end. Um, Sex Trafficking Survivor Services. So here's the number, 509-212-9995. 509-212-9995. You can call or text 24-7, mirror-ministries.org. All right, let's talk some Proverbs. Ben, I screwed up the drop again. All right, let's talk some Proverbs. Here we go. What? What? At this point, I think I can count on one hand the times I have not screwed that up. This is episode number 16. I think I'm running about three where I've gotten that drop right. Yeah. Even a Ninja Turtle could count that on one hand. (laughs) This would be true. Pastor Ben, it's all about the Benjamins. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing well, sir. And yourself? I I should say it's all about the Benjamins singular. You are the man. All right. Oh, let's not make this about me. But yes, I want to hear about what wisdom has to say. Let's talk about Solomon. Okay, so what we got today is Proverbs 3, verse 1. I was going to do verses 1 and 2, but chapter or uh, verse 1 is plenty to keep us busy. It says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So, here comes the issue of sonship again, right? We keep hearing this about, you know, Solomon saying, my son, or mama wisdom, the, the woman wisdom saying, you know, act like a son to me and act like I am your mother and remember this stuff. So back in the very first verse of Proverbs, you get Proverbs 1.1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of King David, king of Israel. Again in verse 8, hear, my son, your father's instruction and take and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So Solomon says that, among other things, like he, he says, I am significant because of what was done in the generation before me. I am Solomon, and that matters because I am the son of David. And then he wants his son to listen to him, to his wisdom, because it's coming from the generation even before him. So Solomon's like, hey, David's grandson, listen to David's son because we are significant because of David. So what he's getting at here is that he wants wisdom to be a multi-generational endeavor. Right? He wants it to transfer down through family lines and through lines of influence across generations so that it doesn't die out. Because one thing we know is that you and I are temporary, like the grass of the field, man. We get set on fire, we gone. So he wants the, the wisdom to transfer down across generations. And um, these, are, these are interesting uh, proverbs that we're getting into here in chapter 3 and beyond because you know he, he passes these things along to his son that 
he didn't actually come up with, at least most of this stuff. Solomon did not come up with these Proverbs, probably some of them, but really he compiled them. And we, we know this because he tells us. So in Ecclesiastes 12, which he also wrote, uh, 12 verse 9, 10, and 11, he says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher, Solomon's name for himself, also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many Proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads. The masters, what's a goad? Uh, that's a that's a thing that a spiky thing that you would like you know they would uh, uh, prick like a, a donkey or a mule to get them to go. Oh, okay, you know cattle prod type of deal. Essentially, okay. You know what else a goat is? It would it's a great thing for me to research before I teach about it on a microphone. Th- that could be something. Yeah. Right so to continue, verse eleven: the words of wise men are like goads. The masters of these collections are like well driven nails. See, that makes more sense now. And they, <laughs> they are given by one shepherd. Listen, people, we're all learning here together. I'm, I'm the lead learner. That's, that's how we do discipleship here. Amen. Yeah. So Solomon went all over the place to find wisdom that came before him because what he says here is, you know, they are given by one shepherd. All truth is God's truth, right? So he, he went around the world, which he had access to being the king. He had international relationships and treaties and, you know, married everybody's daughter and so on. So he, he knew people in other countries and um, he quoted directly from them. So here's some, some cool stuff. We've got some philosophers in other countries that we have their documentation of exactly what, what Solomon wrote in Proverbs, but they wrote it before he did. So we know who he was quoting. So, for example, there's a guy named Amenemope that came from Egypt. And believe it or not, one of them, uh, his name was Ahikar. If I'm, you know, whatever. Sure, Ahikar. He's not alive to argue with me. So uh, his, his name was Ahikar, and he was in Assyria, the advisor to Sennacherib in his older age, who, by the way, is a bad, bad dude in the Bible a few years after Solomon. And yet Solomon is quoting his court sage. So he just grabs wisdom from everywhere. So that's pretty cool. We think Solomon might have, like, maybe even known these guys. There might be enough uh, crossover in the timeline that it's possible that Solomon knew some of these guys. But if he didn't know them, at least he was he was reading their stuff, right? They were they were swapping docs back and forth. So Solomon wants to take wisdom from before him, package it up in a digestible format, and then pass it on to the next generation. And that's what came down to us as the Book of Proverbs. By the way, stop, pull off the road. Not a bad description of the job of a parent. Right? Take wisdom from before, package it up in a digestible format, and pass it along to the next generation. That is a large part of the job. So back to Proverbs 3, 1 then. Solomon says, my son, do not forget my teaching. In other words, don't make it so that I did all of this for nothing. Right? Don't waste my work. Don't waste my sacrifice. No parent wants that. Right? We all invest in our children, and one of our biggest fears is that our children would be fools. They would reject wisdom. They would despise sound teaching and that they would, uh, um, you know, make a, a mockery or a waste out of everything that we have put into them. So he doesn't want that. But what you can see here in the heart of Solomon teaching his son and by extension teaching us in the Proverbs is that he doesn't want to beat us down with pounding law into our heads, right? He's not a a mean schoolmaster. He's a father. He wants. He's giving us stuff that he wants to lead to life and flourishing. And this is a, a loving endeavor. So when Solomon calls somebody a fool in the Proverbs and you're like, hey, Al, like that stings a little bit. He's talking about me. Yeah, but it's all under the umbrella of a loving correction, right? It's, it's loving discipleship. So it's not, just, it's, it's not just do this, do that. It's, hey, do this and you will be well. Do that and you will be well. Do this and you won't be well. See, that's a much more loving conversation to have, which 
by the way, makes perfect sense because remember that Solomon is writing this stuff, but he's not ultimately the author. The Holy Spirit is the, the final author of all scripture. And so God wanted Solomon to research this stuff. God wanted Solomon to compile this. The Holy Spirit, according to 1 Peter 1.11, was actually working in Solomon to write this stuff down. So, so the Holy Spirit was overseeing the, the research project. So God loves you like a father, the way Solomon loved his sons. Now, Solomon was not a great dad. God is the perfect father. So you could say that, you know, Jesus is the better Solomon, you might say, if I was, uh, you know, to dip into a certain recent move of Reformed theology. So back to verse one, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Okay, so here we have our old friend that we've talked about before, the Hebrew parallelism. It's, it's the same thing said in two different ways back to back, a parallelism. And so we can use these two statements to interpret each other because we know that they mean the same thing. So they're going to expand on one another. So we got two parallel statements. Don't forget and let your heart keep, right? Don't forget and let your heart keep. This means that like by forgetting, Solomon means something more than don't let that information leave your head. That's the old Homer Simpson thing, right? Every time I learn something new, it pushes old information out. He's not talking about data on the, the mainframe there. By forgetting, he means something more than loss of information. There's, there's, a, there's a heart element to it, right? Like, think about it this way. He doesn't say, let your mind keep my commandments. He says, let your heart keep my commandments. So forgetting here is not a head problem. It's a heart problem. So what does he mean by the heart? Well, the same thing everybody means by the heart before the you know 20th century. They mean the, the motivational center. It's why you do what you do. It's the core of not just who you are, but, but your decision-making process, your, your values. That's your heart. So what your head remembers is memorable information, and that's all fine. But what your heart remembers is lovable information. Your heart keeps what it desires. It keeps what it loves. So Solomon isn't saying to put these Proverbs on a flashcard deck and memorize them, though that would be a, probably a great use of time in life, better than most of the stuff that we do. But what he's saying is treat this stuff like solid gold. Set your affections here. You do get to decide what you love. You know, you, you do. You, you, we're not at the whim of our, our emotions. You know, there's that old saying, you can't choose who you love. No, you can't choose who you lust after all the time. But, you know, sometimes that sneaks up on you. But you can choose who and what you love, what you will sacrifice for, what you hold to be in the highest state in your mind. You get to pick your values. And so Solomon is saying, pick this. Pick this wisdom. So, how do you do that? Well, I'll give you a simple tip. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, one for every day of the month. And on the days that, on the, on the months that don't have 31 days in them, double up, you know, or skip chapter 31 and hit it next month, whatever you want to do. But, but like, for example, I've been doing this for years now. You read a chapter of Proverbs a day, takes you a couple of minutes, and I've been doing this a long time, and there's so much in there that it's too much to fit in my head. And so even though I, I see the same things over and over again, because I'm reading Proverbs every month, I still see stuff that, that's hitting me for the first time because it was just too much to absorb last time. So check this out. Every time I read Proverbs, it's familiar, and yet it's fresh. Well, that's cool, right? I've just, and so I just grow to love that, and I grow to expect it. So much so that you know, I, I created a podcast to share this with people, because I know you're never going to get to the end of the fruit of the book of Proverbs. And then this really cool thing happens. When, like, when I haven't read Proverbs for a while, maybe I've been traveling, or I've just been lazy and you know, kind of a dingbat or whatever, and... I haven't read Proverbs much, and then I crack it open for the first time in a little while, and it just like it's it's like catching up with an old friend. You know, there's no condemnation. It's just like, 
ah, this is comfortable for me. It makes me happy. It makes me smile. And especially when I'm doing that in my favorite Bible, and especially when I'm doing that in my favorite Bible in my favorite chair. That's the best. Anyway, so that's, that's why I say repetition is the mother of skill. If you want to be skilled in wisdom, engage it repeatedly. Do not let your heart forget what Solomon has said. So don't gloss over chapter 3, verse 1. You know, I know it seems like just an intro to a much bigger idea, but God is really telling us a lot there. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. Pastor Ben, we got some thises and thats. Uh, I think today we're just doing some pastoral questions, yeah? Sounds good to me. Yeah, so uh, if you guys have uh, other pastoral questions, you can e- either email them to dustin at graceandtruthcommunity.com or you can, uh, I, <laughs> I thought about this, we're going to revive that old uh, Twitter handle that I had. I set oh. up that Twitter account, just, I mean, not because I'm a big Twitter fan, but it was very usable for when we took that trip down to Nashville, right, mm-hmm. to keep the church updated on stuff. Yep. So it's still sitting out there. So you can... Uh, if, if you're a if you're a tweeter, you can tweet questions to uh, you know Grace and Truth at GT Micropastor at GT Micropastor, and we'll get those questions, and we'll uh, we'll do an episode of uh, on them if you know if they're any good. If they're stupid, I'm gonna delete them. You know, if you're just trying to pick a fight, they're gone. Not into it. We're after wisdom. We don't answer a fool according to his folly, do we? That's fair. Yep. All right. So what are, what are we doing? What do we got for pastoral questions? All right. So for our thises and thats, we have a couple things. Uh, actually, three. First of all, first question number one. Christians often aren't known for the things that Christ tells us to be known for. How can we change that on a mass scale? Man, I love the heart behind that question, right? Like, yeah. How, how can the community of Christ bring more glory to Christ by our reputation? Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so let's break it down. We're not known for the things, we're not often known for the things that Christ tells us to be known for. Such as, we're probably going to break into two categories here. Some of those will be legitimate criticisms, and some of those will be illegitimate criticisms, right? Mm -hmm. So illegitimate criticisms would be, you know, well, the church doesn't look any different than the world. I call BS on that. I say absolutely not. I know saved people, I know unsaved people, and I'm telling you, there is a big difference when the Holy Spirit is living inside of somebody, and I don't think there's any better source of information than somebody that spends all of their time among people witnessing life change. So, you know, I, I, uh, I say party foul on that one. The church looks massively different than the world, and anybody who says different either has an agenda or doesn't have any experience with it. Yeah, I think also in, in reflecting on that particular part is, is usually, you know, it, it, it's like sometimes when I talk to my son or others, when, when someone says something, something really poor to him, right? Mm-hmm. And then he makes an immediate snap judgment about that person. It's like, do you want to be known for your worst mistake on the worst day that maybe you had? Right? Yeah. And so are these, is the church being known for, you know, for maybe the, the sins that we all have, but mm-hmm. at, all of us individually, and all of a sudden, you know, one gets brought up. Yeah. And pronounced, you know, do you judge the, you know, and, and we talked about, um, you know, some very prominent Christians that have fallen into sin in, in recent podcasts, such as Rabbi Zacharias, or yep. who was exposed as having had struck, had a, a deep struggle with sexual sin. Yeah. Do we judge an entire community of faith based upon the sins of one particular individual and, and, and use that as our snapshot? And that many might will. be an unfair. Yeah, yeah, and many will. And if that's where our reputation comes from, I don't think that's our responsibility to fix it. I think, you know, I mean, it's our responsibility to be clear about what the sin was and to disassociate that from the teachings of Christ. But honestly, if, if I'm carrying somebody else's baggage, you know, reputation wise, 
then that's that's not a me problem. That's yep. a you know that's a judgmentalism problem of the person that's making the judgment. So some of that stuff we can shrug off, right? Yeah, we don't need to be loved and liked by everybody all the time. Now, the Bible does say, especially for pastors in First Timothy three and Titus one, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. But a good reputation could be, hey, this guy's faithful and he will not budge on the gospel, and that makes me want to kill him. They don't like us, but that's actually, in the yeah. kingdom of God perspective, that's a really good reputation to have, yeah. you know? So, illegitimate criticisms, um, you know, other people's sins being stapled to us. Actually, we get this a lot with uh, the Crusades, right? Yep, oh, I, I do. I'll hear that one all the time. Well, religion leads to violence. I'm like, yeah, give me an example of, of actual Christianity, like, leading to violence. Like, well, what about the Crusades? You know, tries me. I'm like, hey, give me an example of actual Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> Repeat the question, please. <laughs> yeah. Asked and answered. Well, and I'm like, first off, if you got to go back a thousand years to find an example, I feel like we're running pretty strong. Not to mention, you know, with that whole thing, like those weren't actually Christians. They weren't able to read the Bible. They weren't, they, they like a lot of them weren't literate and the Bible wasn't in their lingua franca anyway. And they were manipulated by popes. You cannot point to the crusades and then look at a teaching of Christ and say, yes, they were obeying Christ. Can't happen. Can't do it. Okay, so crusades are out. Uh, I'm not apologizing for that anymore. By the way, if somebody says, you know, hey, you you guys have a history of bloodshed, then and they they yeah. threw out the crusades. I'm I'm saying no. I'm not apologizing for that. Well, and you you do have, um, I I think an unfair uh, leveling of of like even say the, like the German Lutheran Church or something like that. Okay. Maybe possibly prompting up Hitler, even as Hitler may have read some of Luther's terrible words or maybe used mm-hmm. those words. Uh, maybe Luther wrote in frustration with uh, the Jewish community. Yeah, at and his sinfully time. so, and sinfully so, right? Yeah. We're not, but but to say, well, that spurred you know the mass genocide of the Jews. I yeah. I call bollocks on that. Okay, if they get if they get to blame Luther for that, then I get to blame Darwin and Schopenhauer. How about that? Sure. All right. Cool. So now but, we need to but, anathematize but to, though. But to get away from what aboutism and really just deal with, okay, this is our thing. Fair point. I'll is, take that. Yeah. Is is to go well? You know, first of all, again, I would I would I would say. You can't. Somebody could use. Gosh, somebody could use God's uh, God's command to Israel to clean out Canaan as 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 some kind of justification for genocide. Yep. Which, of course, yep. you can't do. I mean, that was a specific command to a specific people at a specific time, yeah. and and so you context matters. Being biblical interpretation exactly. matters. Yeah, polygamy. Right, we get this one all the time. Oh like, gosh, David had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple wives. Maybe I should have multiple wives. And it's like, yeah. As if the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself said nothing about this, you moron. You get one. You get one. And the rate you're going, you're lucky if you even get one. That was amen to that. And, and, Sorry, and, and, I just slipped into male discipleship yeah. there for a second. Sorry for all you ladies listening. And, and certainly, ladies, this is definitely not a knock against you, but I, I, I want to devote my time towards one bride. I can't. I don't have time for other multiple brides. That would, that would drive me nuts. And in fact, we can see that Solomon was taken was led away by multiple brides, yeah. his wives. So theologically disallowable and pragmatically a very bad idea. So yeah. all right. So there, there are illegitimate criticisms. I'm sure the list could could yes. go on. What are some legitimate criticisms that the lost world would have of the contemporary church in our context right now? I think maybe um, uh, political idolatry. I think yes. we slip into that one not all the time, but quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the 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 
you know, unanimous mode of all Christians, but I do think that we fall for political messiahs, whether it's candidates or just movements and ideas. Agreed. And we look to those to solve our spiritual problems. So, okay, that's, you know, the, the religious right, I think, should rightly take a shellacking from the world on occasion. Agreed. Okay, what else we got? Um, you could say uh, maybe a lack of care, a lack of mercy. And then that could be directed towards a particular church. I mean, you could be okay. a church in bold, but, you know, is are there legitimate concerns that the church is not not reacting with mercy in these particular situations, maybe throwing a cold shoulder. Sure. I'm not saying all the time, I'm, but, that, but that sometimes in various, in various churches, I think that could be a legitimate criticism. It does happen, yeah. And, and I mean, I could think of a couple of these things where I could say, you know, lovingly of the bride of Christ, because I don't, I don't want to slap Jesus' bride in the face, Amen. right? Let's not do that. But we need to be the first to call ourselves out when we're in error. Mm-hmm. So I could say maybe if, if, we, were, if we were known for our charity— then the welfare state would would be unnecessary Agreed. and would not exist, right? Yeah. There, there never would have been a need that politicians tried to solve by giving away other people's money, Yeah, right? And we could look to our brothers and sisters, say, uh, you know, 1,800 years ago when, when, when Rome was trying to clean out the Christians, right? Even their own historians would go up to, to Caesar and say, seriously, Caesar, they take care of our poor better than we do. Yeah. Can we ease um, up a little bit? Yeah, let's, <laughs> we need these guys. We would have a humanitarian disaster if you wiped out all of the Christians. I mean, honestly, think about that. Wouldn't that be amazing if, like, local governments went, we can't survive humanitarily right. without the church. Right, and I do think that we have the funding available, not in every area of the country, but by and large, the American and the Western church has the the financial and the material resources to be able to actually pull that off if we got focused, and I don't think we've done that. Yeah. So I, that's, a, that's a, criti- a good criticism yeah. of the world where if they say, you guys are not as generous as the, the Christ that you claim to serve, we would have to say, yeah. you got a point. All right. Any any other legitimate criticisms right now? Well, there I, are others. But I mean, there's maybe. others. You know, maybe even how churches have handled situations of like sexual abuse or something yep. like that. And got to own that. We got to own it. You got to. And and I think that there are varying degrees of where churches have been honest about that, and mm-hmm. there's varying degrees where the churches or even denominations have struggled to be clear. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think one of those is protectionism, and not yeah. not from the not the standpoint of maybe necessarily protecting leaders, but even just protecting organizations. For example, you know, are 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 they more worried about like lawsuits and yeah. and and those are very real things. They're real things, and that goes to another another issue of greed, right? Yeah. Now, I will say this: the the greedy guys get the headlines. the The faithful small town pastors that are living on peanuts for sixty years in a row and and just grinding it out. That is actually normal Christianity, and, yeah. and examples of that are, are you know, you could get those guys by the millions. But it also is true that when Christians get a lot of assets that come through their fingers, like some, like some people, God just entrusts a lot of stuff. And he says, here's a whole bunch of stuff. I own a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. I've sold off 500 of them, and you're getting the money. Go do some good with it. And some guys blow it, and some guys blow it at times and not others and whatever. And so, yeah, there, there are examples of greed within Christianity. And I think when guys protect their own kingdom from, you know, lawsuits at the expense of faithfulness to, you know, the, the flock or whatever, that's an example of just greed or fear or some kind of idolatry or something. Well, maybe even faithlessness, because yeah, yeah. I, one of the things I was thinking about is, well, what if the money stops? It's like, well, what if the money stops? Yep. But our responsibility is not to necessarily hoard a ton of cash. Yeah. It's to 
you know, like what you say, turn those dollars into disciples. You know, we had that, that is something that we want to do. This, this, we are a conduit, mm-hmm. not a reservoir, not only for the spiritual gifts that God gives us, not only for the word that God gives us, but even for the resources that God gives us. So say can, that again. We're a, we're a what, not a what? We are a conduit, not a reservoir. Wow. All right. Now, not just in the church, but also in our personal lives. How about that? Oh my Apply gosh. that to our personal budgets. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah, good All stuff. right. So we have, so to, we're, we're kind of thin slicing the question here, but the question is, you know, we're not known for the things that Christ told us to be known for. Sometimes, here's where we've gotten so far. Sometimes you can shrug those criticisms off yep. because it's like, hey, listen, you're, you're not one of us. You don't get to, you know, you don't get to comment unless you're inside helping. Then you can help fix the problem. If you don't believe in Christ, leave it alone. Other times, you got to admit that they've got a point, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, the second half of the question was what? What do we do about it? How can we change that on a mass scale? Yeah. I, okay, so I only have one thought. This may be too simplistic of an answer, but maybe it's a good starting point. Time in the text, okay? So if the individual Christian, on average, spent more time listening to the voice of the shepherd and less time listening to whatever else it is that we listen to, I mean, you become like the people you hang out with the most, right? Amen. So if, we're, if we are spending a lot of time in secret with, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit and, the, and an open Bible, and you know, we, we're, we're praying, talking to God, we're reading, we're listening to God, I mean, there's no way that doesn't change stuff. The Word of God does not return void. It will accomplish that for which yeah. it was sent out. And I think if we are deficient, or you know, given that we are deficient in some areas, the first explanation that comes to my mind is we're not engaging with the Word of God as much as we ought to be. Yeah. As a culture. Yeah, I would agree. And I think also um, just, I, I don't know if it really, on a mass scale, um, I'm not sure if that is something that we can take responsibility for. I mean, it, it's Jesus who builds his church, it's the Holy Spirit who moves his church. But on a, but I also don't want to be concerned as much on a mass scale, say, for example, with the folks I'm discipling. Maybe for this question, I, I, I would ask the, even the person asking this question, are you discipling anybody? Mm. Are they seeing? Are they seeing genuine Christianity lived out in your life? And are you calling them to disciple others? And so it's kind of a multiplication movement, which may be a slow start. But oftentimes in our mass media idea, we think we can communicate. We can communicate some concept and then have everybody just boom accept it. Wow! I think discipleship it has to be. And again, being the discipleship pastor, yeah, I'll ring that bell. That it has to be something that we are. It, it's a slow burn. And in, uh, to quote, uh, I think it was Jared C. Wilson on one of his podcasts, he said, discipleship is inefficient. There is not a, an efficient way to do this on a mass scale. There is an inefficient way, which is what Jesus designed. He walked around with 12 guys and really wasn't efficient when it came to evangelism for three years. But then all of a sudden, those 12 guys, having received the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the church bluey. as well, they went crazy. But it didn't. it doesn't look like, you know, if you just read Matthew, the first couple chapters of Matthew, the first couple chapters of Mark and Luke, you're not really seeing an efficient. You're seeing a guy who's doing miracles and amazing, and I'm not trying to besmirch the the uh, second person of the Trinity, which we'll get to. Which, but <laughs> but when it, but to say you know from a world standpoint, this may not look great. Yeah, if you looked at Jesus' calendar, you'd be like, he spent a lot of time walking around. Yeah. And talking with 12 guys who really didn't understand him half the time. Yeah, they seemed like a bad investment. Yeah. How, how but, often have I seemed like a bad investment? Oh, right? gosh. And that and gosh, that should really, you know, on, a whole, on a whole scale level, it's how, whenever I get frustrated with either somebody I'm discipling or someone I'm praying for, I'm like, oh, they just don't get it. 
It's like, oh, do I need to have more patience? And uh, the patience of Jesus as he's dealing with you, as he's ministering to his disciples, you know, and, and teaching them. It's like, okay, yeah. so yeah, Lord, need patience. Maybe, maybe I could synthesize it like this. I'm saying that the way the way we change this on a mass scale, that we would be known for the things that Christ tells us to be known for, which I think is a beautiful desire. Sure. I'm saying if if it was more of a value across the Christian spectrum that we spend time in the text, prayerfully reading our Bibles, okay, mm-hmm. if we did more of that. We'd, we'd be on the right track. And you're saying the way to affect that is the slow burn. Like, in other words, maybe you could say to the person that asked this question, well, you clearly get it. Now go multiply yourself. Yes. And so we had this talk yesterday. I quoted somebody, the, you know, I forget who it was. Might've, this sounds like something Alistair Begg would say. And I just say that because it would sound awesome in a Scottish accent, but I don't know if it was him. But he, he or someone like him said, don't, don't, under, uh, don't overestimate what you can accomplish in a year. And don't underestimate what you can accomplish in 10. Yeah. Right. So maybe we can't solve the problem right now, but maybe our kids or our grandkids can live in an entirely different world where the reputation of little Christs, of Christians, is more in line with their Savior than, than our generation is. Yeah. Maybe we have a wicked and perverse generation, and we can only change that down the line or influence it. Oh, that's cool. All right. Well, wh- I mean, so I think that's a great answer because that maintains uh, your answer. I mean, it, it maintains the urgency while taking the idolatry of control out of, the, out of the equation. It. Absolutely. That's Ab- beautiful. Because we can't, because if we, if we think that we can affect something on a mass scale, in, in some ways it almost, are we elevating ourselves to like a deity? Yeah, saying, I can fix this. Therefore, you all must do. Right. It's like, oh man, be careful. Yeah, I can Messiah this beast. No problem. <laughs> oh, run away quickly. Yeah. Well, and, and to, to any preachers or aspiring preachers who are listening, I do think that, that we are going to be uh, judged more strictly here because it's up to us whether we're going to make Christianity pragmatic or relational with God. In other words, if what we're preaching is, hey, you can be a better you and you can fix your problems in seven ways to whatever, if, if our preaching is primarily practical, you know, now nobody would dispute that there are practical applications to the text. When God gives an imperative, when he says do something, then the message from the pulpit is, hey, do let's something. do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the power of God, under the, the you know, the, the grace of the gospel, Amen. let's do it. But, you know, if, if the emphasis of the, we, we did that episode with, uh, with Tim Carr on the New Apostolic Reformation, and he, he kept hammering this point home, which I thought was brilliant, where what, like I said, what's the difference between a Pentecostal brother and sister in Christ, and an NAR guy who's just whacked out. Is it just a matter of degrees, or is there a different message in there? And he said, pay attention to the emphasis. If what they're emphasizing is not the gospel, but is the miracles, you've got a different, you've got an unchristian movement here, right? So, and I think that's that's a big thing here. What are we as preachers emphasizing? Is it the finished work of Christ? Is it the grace of God? And then we apply with, you know, we, we apply with imperatives, or are we emphasizing the do and only only the, you know, we're, we're emphasizing the, um, the actions, the response on our end and bringing up the gospel just in a way that empowers our actions. See, that's a, that's a very different emphasis. And that error will lead to exactly the problem that led to this question. Amen. All right. So problem solved, fix the world. Solved. Yeah. We, ju- we just messiah this All piece. Right, Good job. Cast over. Oh, oh man. But no, just, okay. So, <laughs> um, <a> mistake. <laughs> number two, question number two on the, Those. this is and that's. All right. So again, this kind of bolts off of our um, our quick answer uh, session a while ago. Can a Christian be a communist? Right. So on that episode, which I believe was episode nine, we did we did a, a lightning round where we had to try and answer in one sentence. I got a couple of people in the church here that said. Um, Please don't ever do that again. That was torture trying to listen to you guys cram these 
huge doctrines into one sentence. They were like, I was uh, one person. She said she was in the grocery store and she was listening to it. And she was like, just sitting there like, get to it, get to it. Because we were stretching it out so long trying to formulate our answers. So I'm sorry for the torture that we caused. I also equally apologize. Yeah. And yet we probably refuse to stop. I think it's going to wind up happening again. So it was kind of fun. I totally lost track of this question. Okay. What was it about communism? Can, can a Christian be a communist? Okay. All right. So I believe my answer, and I didn't look this up, but I'm just going back in the mental vault here. My answer was not consistently, and your answer was very much more diplomatic than that. It yeah, was- I, but I'm also, I may, I may amend that. <laughs> you, want, you want to rock, paper, scissors for this or what? No, I, I'll, I'll go. go um, so I, I, think, I think a Christian, it's going to be really, really hard. I, you're not consistently, you can't be a communist. Part of the whole idea of, you know, we were just talking about this earlier today, the whole idea of personal property, right? Mm-hmm. Owning personal property. Um, in obviously in the Ten Commandments, we're called not to steal. And so therefore, that means that someone can have personal property by which somebody else can steal. And so we, we you know, just the abolishment of personal property, I think even the, the calls in the scripture to do labor, and, and and to do that consistently and to work with your hands, these are these are things that are antithetical to the whole communist experience. I mean, yeah, you you can say yeah you're working for the state or whatever, but let's just be honest. Again, you can look at various areas where true communism has been practiced, and you will find it is it is not a it is you're 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 laboring, but you're not laboring in the same way. You know the 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 idea even of just getting a a stipend or something like that from the government or anything that's just not that's not right. We're called to we're called to call idle people out and tell them to labor with their hands. If they don't labor, then they will not eat. So the the idea, for example, of a basic minimum income or anything like that, which are some of the more newer, spicier versions of what we would call communism, uh, I. I think that's antithetical to the Christian life. We labor, we work, we work with our hands diligently, and there's a product that comes from that, and it actually glorifies God. Yeah, work was around before the curse, Absolutely. Right? Yeah, the labor and the toil and the, the badness of it, just yeah. the, the frustration of it all. I mean, the, you know, the fact that I got to sit around and try and figure out how to find the right setting on my Mac just to you know, write a sermon in a decent document that I'm comfortable mm-hmm. with, that's a result of the fall, right? Yeah. But work itself is a good and a dignified and a godly thing. So when that, when that gets... And, you know, look, communism in its, in its core documents and in its early practice and everything, they, they didn't say don't work, right? It was just a very different view of labor itself. Agreed. Right? So the, the view was you labor for, it, it was, of course, Marx's, uh, or no, it was Lenin, from, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. So everybody labors as a collective, not as an individual, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, and then some people carry the load, others benefit from the load, and it supposedly evens out and it winds up being a fair an economically fair system. Whereas, you know, in the Bible, like you're saying, you know, if, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's the way that goes. And, um, you know, re- admonish the rebellious or admonish the idle. Also mm-hmm. the same word for rebellious. It's just obstinate. He just won't move. And that applies whether you're saying no to the text of scripture or whether you're just refusing to get your butt off the couch. You admonish the the idol, the obstinate. Yeah. And that, and, it, and that quote from Lenin or Marx, and exactly, I don't remember who 
who penned it first was well yeah but anyway the to to say you know to everyone who has to everyone who has need of that that sounds so much like acts the last the, like acts chapter two and we get you know, that a lot and we do get that but the problem here is again that's a that's a governmental structure you know that is essentially doing load balancing for labor and especially for those who are unable to labor whereas in the church it is an act of mercy towards those who have need well and i think and, that's the core difference too between exactly. christianity and and uh uh, communism, where, you know, in in Acts two, that didn't happen until you had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit post Pentecost, yep. and so it was this internal um, heart generosity where people mm-hmm. voluntarily and freely gave because the Spirit led them to, and they joyfully obeyed. Whereas mm-hmm. in communism, even from the the founding of it and the original uh, thought behind it with Marx and Engels, you it was it was a replacement for God. It's a necessarily atheistic system where the government mm-hmm. takes the place of God, and therefore you have to impose that generosity yeah. and force it. That's that's completely different. Now, in the end, you still have you still have sharing. The question is, do you have sharing um, voluntarily because somebody sees a need and meets a need, or do you have sharing at the point of a gun where somebody says you share or you die? That's yeah. not sharing. That's theft, right? Yeah. That's th- that's mass scale theft. So these are very different things that both wind up with a neighbor giving a neighbor some some bread. But mm-hmm. the the symptom. The, the the similarities in the symptom is not does not go to a similarity at the core. Yeah. But I think one of the things you also touched on was the idea of the government being the all powerful. Yeah, right. That at at its core, then if that is if that is if the state or if the government or if the collective mass of people are all powerful, I mean that's just straight up idolatry. Yeah. You know, and and we saw that in Babel, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make this, you know. And and God's like, no, I ain't gonna happen. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna squash this. And and so even if it's, you know, and and I've and I've heard, you know, from others that, you know, for example, it's well, the 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 USSR was statism as it was it wasn't communism. Okay, fine. But then if you're gonna do some kind of pure communist communistic or socialistic society that that exalts itself and the collective mindset. As as someone who is over God, you got a problem with that too. Yeah, the only the, the only thing that I've ever seen historically, and I, I read a lot of history. I'm a history nut. I'm not a scholar by any means, but I've done a decent survey of history, right? And it's like, you know, the the only application of those principles that I've ever seen go well is in monasteries where everybody there was there voluntarily and submitted to God, and then you have you have generosity, you have sacrifice and submission, and you have. Um, joyful poverty, which is something that communism tries to enforce, right? You're like, okay, you're, you're, yeah, you're not going to get paid for your work, but you're, it's for the greater good. Well, when monks, be happy with the empty store shelves, yeah, and the empty stomach, right? When uh, when monks or nuns would in church history take that on voluntarily, they still ended up having enough to share and provide medical care for travelers and safe harbor for fugitives that you know had been falsely accused. And I mean, that's why the the monasteries were the centers of intellectual um, development and translation, not just of Bibles, but of all books and literature at the time. That's why they were the centers of medicine in the medieval world. That's why they were the, the banks, because you could put their money, people could put their money there and trust that it wasn't going to get touched. And the centers of music and artistic development. Conversely, th- there's an old saying, which is true, communism never produced a great work of art. You know, there's no, there's no beauty in it. You get Richard Wagner, which is some of the most bombastic garbage music there's ever been in my classically trained, humble opinion. But you know, well, I should make an exception to that. Communism never produced a great work of art, except some of that Russian music is gorgeous. And the reason it's gorgeous is because nobody can weep like a Russian composer. And so it's, it's terribly tragic music and the beauty of it 
only shows through in its pain, you know? And so th- there, there are differences of kind here, not just differences of degrees to go back to what, you know, Tim Carr was saying. And you cannot recreate the effects of the kingdom of God through a top-down political structure or any political structure, really, and then expect that this is going to lead to human flourishing or any good result. Yeah, and I would say, so I think, I think to summarize, right, we're saying... It's quite the rant that I just yep. went on there. I'm proud can of myself. Can you be a Christian and be a communist? Not consistently. Now, that's not to say that you can't be a Christian and living in a, in a communist government, living under a communist government. Yeah. You can still do that, but as far as saying, yes, this is, these are the great party ideals and I can get behind them, uh, you know... It's going it, to clash. Yeah, especially if something that calls what you believe is an opiate of the masses... That's going to be a problem. Yeah, it's going to be a problem. And so what you can have is you can have a Christian communist because they're a new Christian, right? If you Legit. if you share the gospel with communists, you're going to wind up with Christian communists. But you teach them to read their Bible, and they're going to start to see some stuff that is not what their political ideals have taught them. Which is why time after time, if you see a nation that goes into go, that falls into communism on one level or another, immediately Christianity is suppressed. Yeah. I mean, you just, you can't get around that. Communism or a a communist-like form of government. I mean, I'm including socialism and fascism here and blah, blah, blah. They they would dispute amongst themselves, but I I kind of, I'm comfortable broad brushing them. So did I ever tell you about that time we were over there in uh, Chaz? Remember when the Chaz thing was going down? No. Yeah. So this was, I don't know what, maybe a year before you got here, right? So they, they, they took over part of, if if you're listening to this, you know, 20 years down the road, just refresh your course. Um, so they went to Seattle and they took over a place in Capitol Hill and they called it CHAZ, the C-H-A-Z, which was uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And then they changed it to CHOP, which stood for something else. And then they changed it back to CHAZ and they couldn't agree on what the name was. But they said, this is now a country. You know, we are a sovereign nation. Get out. And they set up blockades and, you know, no no cars were able to get in and no police were able They chased the police out and things like that. And the, the police precinct was on the main road of these six blocks that they took over. And so they, they you know, raided it and the cops, um, you know, the police chief was a schmuck and so was the, the mayor. So, and they um, protected it with legitimately purchased and uh, owned uh, firearms. I'm they didn't sure. protect it at all. They left. Oh, snap. They turned it over. Yeah. Okay. So. So we, we heard on the news, because I mean, you know, we're three and a half hours away from Seattle. We heard on the news, hey, a new country got set up in Seattle. Let's go to the mission field. So we were like, we were all joking around, like, do we need our passports? What are, we, are they going to stamp it? So a few of us went over there. We went to Chaz, and we just decided we'd walk around and share the gospel with people, right? So we got there a little while after there was the big conflict and the clash with the cops. So they felt like they had won. So everybody was happy, and they were smoking a lot of weed and drinking a lot of stuff. And um, there were like these... Uh, you know, street artists that were setting up booths and things like that. And it was really weird. They had a grocery store there where people would bring and donate stuff and you could just go and freely get whatever you wanted. So they had set up their utopian dream right there. And so, um, yeah, it lasted about 36 hours and then people got shot. Shocking. So, uh, I, I was talking to this kid, I mean, he's 20 and he, he set up a, a booth or like a table and he was recruiting for the communist party USA. So I go over and I'm sharing the gospel with him. Right. And it was, it was interesting to listen to him talk because he, he was active duty military and he was there recruiting for the Communist Party USA. So I, I called somebody that I know in the military. I was like, is that legal? And he was like, uh, no. Did you get a picture of this guy? Because that's, <laughs> that's court-martial material. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it turns out it was 2020. So we were all, you know, everybody had to, you know, they were all masked up or whatever. So the picture wouldn't have done much good. But anyway, so I was asking him, like, all right, what are you trying to accomplish here? You know, your communist dream, you're recruiting to add to the roles to make this thing happen. What are you trying to accomplish? And his answer to me was so interesting because it sounded just like the church properly functioning, right? He said, well, what if we didn't need 
to enforce the law by force? What if everybody just knew what was right and we could help each other follow that? And then you've got different experts in different things. So you don't need to have you know, all these, these different like social services, you can just, Hey, there's a medical problem. Well, this guy over here is good at medicine. Hey, there's an auto problem. Well, this guy over here in our small community is good at the the car stuff and whatever. And aside from the whole issue of, well, who's going to produce the medicine and who's going to produce the cars? Like that's, that's a down the line thing. I'm like, dude, you're describing my church. Like somebody already did this and we didn't have to shoot anybody to get it done. Like, what are you looking for? But the problem is that that requires submission to Christ and the communists can't do that. Right. Because to because rung number one on the communist ladder of ideals is no God state instead. So, yeah, it wouldn't work. He he had he would have had to choose that day. And I tried to get him to, but didn't work. He um, he would have had to choose between Christ or his political philosophy. And I think that's what it comes down to. A lot of times you cannot have both, at least not consistently. That's hard. Yep, absolutely. All right. Okay. Number three. Question number three. Who (laughs) is your favorite member of the Trinity? Yeah, that's another expansion from the lightning round, right? Yes. Yeah, I remember you hit me with this one on the lightning round, and I was just like, can we pause? But we can't. There's no way to pause the podcast. No. Okay. Do you remember your answer to this? We should have done some research. If I recall correctly, I would say God the Son, but... Yeah, I remember saying something like, this might not be word perfect, but yeah. I mean, I, I tried to say God and you called you called me on it. You said, no, do better. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was something like um, my favorite area of study within Trinitarian theology is okay, Christology. Yeah, we called that, yeah. Or something like that, right? Yep. So, okay. So I don't, I don't have a favorite, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whatever. But my, like personally, my favorite person of the trinity you know the 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 person within our triune god who is three and yet one Mm -hmm. my favorite one of the three one is to to think about study you know interact with the information about is probably the sun just because christology is the key to like everything else that was just my shoe yeah i'm just tapping over here because i'm neurotic yeah don't drink coffee before a podcast that's the rule all right Where's the espresso machine? Should we bring that in here? No. No? All right. Not at all. <laughs> Maybe we'll do an episode on espresso. Yeah, only if we want to do it in chickmoan voices. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Christology is the key to a lot, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, the sun, the sun shows us the Father. Amen. And if you want to know the Father, you get to know the Son. The Spirit, like especially in Luke and Acts, his function is to testify to the Son. Yeah. So it really seems like God funnels our attention towards the Son in a lot of ways, and then we access everything else from there he's the one that accomplished the gospel on the cross like you know there's just a lot of reasons for it yeah and 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 all along those lines and again favorite is is such a you know it's such a it's such a hard word it's you messed know? up i yeah. don't know who asked that it's question you know like someone you. says you know who's your favorite child and i'm not i don't, I don't have favorite children I love, I love them all really because like three minutes ago when we were recording this you just ignored a call from one of your children so should i shout out who you oh, don't love you <laughs> Um, but what I, but what I, you know, I, I just, as I read the scripture, it just seems like you mentioned, always seems to point towards Christ and, and there's so much richness there. I mean, I, I, I mean, reading the book of Hebrews, you just can't, you can't see the author. And again, the spirit who, who was deriving that author saying, Hey guys, look, Jesus is better. Hey guys, look, yeah. Jesus is better. He has spoken to us in his son. Hey, guess what? Jesus is better, you know, and so, and that's not to say that God, you know, that, that, that there's, you know, favorites or whatever, but it's just, 
that is something that I think also resonates so much because again, he's our second Adam. He is he is the he is he is the uh, the firstborn from among the dead. I mean, I could go to the Christ exalting him that Paul writes in Colossians yeah. chapter one, but but to so do, do does that affect God the Father in all of His glory? No, because when Jesus is exalted. God is exalted. You know, does it affect the Spirit of God? No, because the Spirit of God dwells within us and exalts the Son because, again, they're one. So, you know, I think I think it would be fair to say the mo- Jesus certainly would be the most— oh, I don't want to—I'm going to be really careful here and parse my— Okay, please yeah, we, forgive me if I spot heresy here. There is but, grace here. These are your tough yeah, issues to discuss. It would, it would seem that Jesus is the most accessible— yeah. In the sense of like, okay, I now know what God the Father looks like, acts, and how he, and and even it makes sense of everything that happens in the Old Testament, versus um, versus you know just just uh, you you get to see Christ, you just become it just you see him, and so it, favorite most prominent maybe I don't want to say prominent, but the most. You could even say the, the most fun to think about. I mean, really, because we've got more information about the Son than we do about the other two, right? Like John one eighteen, no one has seen God at any time, but the Son, He yeah. has explained Him to us. Agreed, right? So, yeah. Th- now, my my hesitation there is that I don't get to consider all of the information. So, so this this answer that I have that like, yeah, I have more fun interacting with the theology of the Son than than any of the other two. Which is not to say I don't have fun you know, learning about the father and praying to the father and learning about the spirit and and praying in the spirit and so on. Mm -hmm. That's all great stuff. But if I had to pick one, I would go that way, but I don't get to play with a full deck here because there's a lot about God, the father and the Holy spirit that we just don't get told, you know? And so there's a lot more mystery wrapped up there, which in itself is a lot of fun. Yeah. But yeah, we just, it, it does seem that, that he has made Christ to be the most relatable one for us. In fact, I mean, I'm just thinking of this now, so maybe I'm, this isn't fully thought out. But you know, we are we are not called fatherins or holy spiritans. We're called Christians, right? We were called that in Acts. What is it, eleven or thirteen? And then, you know, in the early chapters of Acts, we were called followers of the way. And Jesus says, "I am the way" in John fourteen yeah. six, the truth and the life, right? And so we really are by reputation, by relationship with the Father. We are we are identified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer Him who lives. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Yeah. Um. You know, we are hidden in Christ. Paul's always saying, "In Christ, in Christ, whatever." Yep. So it seems like that. <laughs> I don't want to go too far and say our answer is the correct one and everybody else is wrong. But when we say that, you know, and we both come to that independently, that. Yeah, we would probably lean towards Christ as a matter of reflex, and the other two is just a matter of joy. You yeah. know, maybe that seems to be the the biblical emphasis yeah. as well. And certainly, coming to that conclusion, does, like you said, doesn't negate the, the the love that we have for our Father, our Heavenly Father, who decreed all of this stuff from the beginning, yeah. crushed His only Son, so that we could be His and no longer rebels, or that we are diminishing the role of the Spirit, who actually took a dead heart that was steeped in sin, that was running on its own way from God, and said, "Hey, wait a minute." Now you believe, yeah. you know, and you, you love whom you once hated. Exactly. And so to, to, that doesn't diminish either of those, but again, it's just that, oh, wow. You know, really when you, you know, therefore God has highly exalted him, yeah. Jesus, that at the name, uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee, uh, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. I'm sure I butchered that verse. No, no, you got it. You recovered it. Nice. Yeah, That's right. There we go. Yeah, and there's a, there's a weird thing and I got to be careful how I say this. It is possible, and it's a weird thing to see, when Christians get distracted by members of the Trinity. In other words, yeah. it, it seems to me like, and correct my, my thinking on this, 
but it seems to me that God funnels, you know, the, the triune God funnels so much of our attention towards the Son. It's possible to get distracted by the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of the focus on the Son. And, you know, and it's also possible, I think, to do this with the Father. So, like, maybe on, on both sides, if you get distracted by the Holy Spirit and you pay more attention to Him than, than to the Son, the Holy Spirit's sitting there saying, yeah, but I'm here to testify to Christ. Amen. Yep. And then we wind up with this kind of um, exhibitionism where it's like, look at the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, w- I did a uh, revival meeting one time when I was in Africa because they were like, hey, show up to this revival and preach the gospel. I'm like, yeah, you bet. Let's go. And the guy that got up before me was Apostle Nicholas whoever. And I'm like, I, I saw, they made a poster with me on it. And then they were like, and they've posted it all over this slum, right? It was in uh, Kawangwari in, in uh, Nairobi. And so it was me and then the apostle Nicholas, whoever. And I'm like, I'm preaching a revival with an apostle. Great. Here we go. And Woo! so, yeah. So he gets up and he, he grabs the microphone. They said, brought this mobile sound system. They set it up and uh, he grabs the microphone and he just starts yelling and he goes, I love the Holy Spirit. And everybody starts cheering. And I'm like, that's great. Where's the gospel in this? Let's, you know, and I was waiting for it. And there wasn't one. It was just all about how he loves the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives him power. And there was actually a distraction from the gospel, which is weird because the Holy Spirit is God. You wouldn't expect that that would be possible, but it is. And so then on the other side, if you pay too much attention to the father, that was a bad way to put that. Um, if, if you overemphasize your love for the father at the expense of the focus that we're supposed to have on Christ, then you might wind up with some kind of like you know, um, Unitarianism or doctrine of oneness or whatever, where it's all about the father and then the, the son and the spirit just proceed from him, but it's really all about him. And you end up with that kind of weird church of God oneness or like worldwide church of God oneness doctrine or something. I'm not sure, but there's, there is a sense in which there are, are, you know, God grabs our chin like a parent to a toddler and gently just turns our face towards Christ and says, Absolutely. look there. Yeah. And there are bad errors when we don't. Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the, you know, how the spirit sometimes is viewed even in like in, in African cultures. Um, a, a, a friend of mine um, who is uh, starting a seminary in South and Cape Town, South Africa, he talked an awful lot about how the view of, especially the, the Pentecostal church in South Africa, that they, they, they mix the spirit realm with the spirit. And so it's the, it's a very, it's a very odd, it's not that I'm in the spirit as in, as being drawn by the Holy Spirit, but instead I'm in the spirit and I'm in this spiritual realm. It's a very, it's a, it's a, I'll get you more information. So like you're, you're in a zone where you are, you're you're not primarily operating in the physical world anymore, but in the spiritual world, or something kind like of that? kind of like that. Almost in, maybe in the same kind of era that uh, that you know Jehovah's is my, Jehovah's Witnesses might might pull the spirit as kind of like a microwave or some kind of ethereal presence, but not not a personal deity, not okay. one that directs towards Christ. Right. It's it's a force a, exactly the yeah. force. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense in Africa too, because so much of of African tribal religion or local religions are, you know, basically voodoo by any other name, right? Where you're communing with these spirits yep. that can possess you and so on. And so some of that can sound pretty indwell-ish, mm-hmm. right? So when, when you hear, hey, there's a Holy Spirit and this is the one true living God and he gives you power, it's like, oh, I've heard that before. That was, you know, I used to I used to sacrifice my chickens to that, that guy or whatever. I didn't know his name was, yeah. you know, Yahweh or something. So yeah. there, there's a lot of weird syncretism that exactly. happens. Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, tricky. All right, what else we got? Is that the last question? I think that is the last question. That's the last one. Well, the world is, uh, since we since we started this podcast episode, I checked outside. Turns out the world is still a messed up place. But we have a gospel that is perfectly suited to fix it. So have that nimble on your lips, and we'll try to equip you uh, all the more the next time we see you. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love him because he first loved us.